and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz. Today I am joined by Jörg Massen, who is Assistant Professor of the Animal Ecology of the Utrecht University and also an Academic Editor at Animals. Welcome, Jörg. Hi. How are you? I'm doing fine, fine, thanks. Excellent. Working on some research today? Uh, today was actually uh, a, um, an education day, so I've been busy with planning the education of next year. Ah, uh, uh, yes. But uh, hopefully maybe in the afternoon I'll, I'll get some time to work on some manuscripts. Excellent. Well, let's start with a short introduction. You know, who you are and also what your background is and, and more about where you work. All right, so uh, yeah, I'm Joach Mosse, um, born in the Netherlands, raised in the Netherlands, in the south of the Netherlands. Um, and then I moved to Utrecht University to study biology uh, and finished there uh, with a, well, a major in, in behavioral biology. Uh, and then moved on to do also my PhD at Utrecht University, where I worked on friendship in macaques. So there I studied two different species of macaques and I studied basically the proximate mechanisms of uh, gaining and maintaining friendship as well as the, uh, the ultimate benefits of uh, such friendships in these macaques. And I compare that to what a friendship means to humans um, as to investigate whether we can truly call this a friendship or whether this is a different concept uh, then we see in us humans, um, and the answer to that is that it, the, the, the concept is actually relatively the same, of course, uh, human friendships, um, we adhere more, we, we put more meaning to it because of our cultural and our language, um, but in principle, the concept is actually the same. So you're, before you move on to more interesting things, because of course we want to hear all about animal friendships and macaque friendships, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what does mean distant and proximate, you know, relationships or uh, approaches when you're studying? So when I talk about proximate mechanisms, I'm talking about... Uh, causes uh, them from a mechanistic point of view to make these friendships uh, and to maintain these friendships. Um, so what are the motivations for these animals to, to keep these friendships going? 
Uh, and then you have to think about partner choice mechanisms, uh, cognitive mechanisms as into reciprocal altruism, for example. So uh, I do something for you, you do something for me. Um, and also the question is how cognitive does this need to be or is this mechanism, for example, could this also be regulated by emotions? Um, and when I talk about the ultimate causations, I'm talking about basically what are the fitness benefits of having friends? So does uh, having friends actually increase your survival or does it increase your uh, reproductive rate? Um, so yeah, so the, 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 the general fitness measures. Um, and we know that friendship, uh, we know this now from multiple studies on, uh, on uh, different animal species, but also humans that having friends actually does um, create longer uh, lifetime, um, but also longer and more reproductive benefits. Uh, so by having friends, you get more access to uh, mates and, yeah, as mentioned, you survive longer. And then obviously we're interested, um, I'm interested in, yeah, so what causes uh, individuals to choose specific other individuals as their friends and how do they maintain these friendships? And that, that's then again these proximate questions. So um, whether that is cognition or physiology or emotions, which is basically a combination of all that. So um, that's what I've been working on during my PhD. And then uh, I moved on to do a postdoc also still at Utrecht University uh, in collaboration with Burger Sue in Arnhem, uh, where I worked on the world famous chimpanzee population over there. And it has been studied since the 70s and uh, is, is one of the best studied chimpanzee populations in the world, I would say. Um, and there I was specifically interested in the effect of personality, again, on, uh, on social relationships or friendships, if you like. Um, I like that, actually. So <laughs> I keep on saying that. Um, so again, the question basically is how do animals choose their friends if they if they at all choose but if they choose how how would they choose whom to befriend and um, the hypothesis uh, I had there in, in, in collaboration with Sonia Koski who's now at uh, Helsinki University uh, was that animals tend to befriend those individuals that are similar to themselves because that makes them more predictable because if you know what you yourself will do in a certain situation it's easier to predict what an individual that is like you will do than to predict what an individual that is not like you will do so therefore we hypothesize that um, individuals tend to spend more time with or befriend uh, those individuals that are similar in personality because um, this predictability might enhance cooperation uh, because you need to coordinate in a cooperative act uh, so that would all benefit uh, eventually uh, such a friendship. So we set out to study uh, personality in this uh, chimpanzee population uh, through a mixture of behavioral observations. That was the work of, uh, of Sonia um, and uh, together with Sonia and a load of students, we then also did a couple of behavioral experiments in, uh, in the population in Arnhem, but also in a population in Amersfoort. Um, 
and then we could really investigate personality in itself, which is, of course, already quite an interesting phenomenon. Uh, but then we could also look what the differences in personality between uh, individuals were. So per diet, we had some measure of similarity or dissimilarity, if you want. And then those measures we then mapped on what we know about the social relationships in these populations. And what we indeed found was that uh, with regard to some personality traits, not all of them, but with regard to some personality traits, uh, we did find that those that are more similar spend more time with each other. So it seems indeed that um, these chimps actually choose their friends um, in that way that they choose more similar individuals. And we have obviously cannot really assess whether they actually chose or whether this is a consequence of them being of similar personality. Um, but interestingly, uh, we do also see that they spend a lot of time with their kin, so with the related individuals, uh, but those are not necessarily similar in personality, uh, which reminded us of a saying like, you can choose your friends, but you cannot choose your family. Um, so, so with family, we see the same patterns with regard to proximity, but not with regard to personality, which suggests that with regard to friendship, uh, they actually make an active choice. So having studied the uh, chimps for just a year, unfortunately, that was just a grant for a year, but was a very productive and really interesting year to study these uh, chimps. Uh, I moved on to Vienna University or University of Vienna in Austria, uh, where I started studying ravens. Um, that is because at a conference, I met Thomas Buchner, who is the professor over there of the uh, cognitive biology department. And it was really interesting to see that uh, I talked about the macaques there and he talked about the ravens. And basically we were talking about the same subject, but just with so, such completely different species. And that really drew my attention to the ravens, um, which made that I pursued a, uh, a postdoc at uh, Thomas's lab. Uh, that postdoc was for two years and eventually I spent six and a half years in, in Vienna. Uh, because I liked it so much over there. Um, and yeah, with the Ravens, I've studied quite a lot. I mean, I went on basically to study the effect of social relationships, uh, but now more specifically on uh, cooperative tendencies. So really looking into the um, cooperative abilities of Ravens, uh, how they cooperate, with whom they cooperate, what is the role of um, social allies, social tolerance uh, in this cooperation. Uh, when I was there, I also set up a project investigating the evolution of pro-social concern, uh, where I compared the ravens with uh, the macaques uh, that I previously studied and then also continued studying from, uh, from abroad, uh, but also in comparison to humans and uh, two different species, namely uh, common marmosets um, and azure-winged magpies. And those two species are really interesting because they show a cooperative breeding tendency, which means that uh, it's not just the parents that raise the offspring. There are, in fact, also um, others in the group that help raise the offspring. And that's something these species have in common with humans, and which has been hypothesized to be at the origin of our 
pro-social tendencies. So if you, if you ask the question like, why are humans so pro-social, so generous, uh, so to say, uh, then some might argue that it is because of our uh, cooperative breeding background. Well, in English, we say it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, so, uh, and that refers back to hunter-gatherer societies where it's indeed actually the whole village that helps raises the children within uh, the community. So it's not just a task of the, the parents. And the idea is that if you have to help individuals that are not necessarily related to yourself, uh, so that are not your own children, you need to have some sort of predisposition to psychological adaptation, so to say, to be pro-social, to help. Um, however, this hypothesis stems from um, primatology only. Um, and among primates, there are in fact very few species that show this uh, cooperative breeding. One of them is the common marmoset. Um, and basically, all others are closely related to the common marmosets. Um, and then we have humans. Um, and it has been criticized a lot, this theory, and uh, most notably because, in fact, the sample size is relatively low because you have a, the family of clitricid monkeys, so which the, the marmoset is part of, uh, and then you have humans. Uh, so basically, your N is two. Um, and to really test this, and to really test how generalizable this hypothesis is, in fact, you need to look further, um, uh, further away. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what, what I intended to do there. And um, yeah, how much further can you go than birds? I mean, you can go further, but it's, it's, it's quite far away with regard to relatedness. Um, and interestingly, among birds, you actually find a lot of cooperative breeding species, uh, but none of them had been tested for uh, their pro-social um, abilities. Uh, so that's what we set out to do. Uh, so the azure wing magpie is a uh, cooperative breeding corvid, so a crow-like bird. Um, and, and then the comparison, of course, with the ravens is also really nice uh, because those are also corvids, uh, but they don't show this cooperative breeding lifestyle. Uh, in fact, they are very territorial and it's just the, the pair that raises the offspring. Uh, so that gave us the nice opportunity in this in this two by two design to study the effect of cooperative breeding and compare comparing that to what we know about general intelligence um, because we know the ravens are very smart birds uh, and to see whether uh, general intelligence might also play a role um, as well as friendships because we know the ravens but also for example the macaques actually show differentiated social relationships that you could uh, dub uh, friendship. And th the findings we found are, are mixed in that sense that, for example, um, we do find that the ravens can cooperate very nicely. Uh, and the same holds for the macaques, that you can get them to cooperate. Um, but if you look at their pro-social tendencies, then uh, they are absent in the ravens and in the macaques they are very um they depend a lot on the context of the situation you you give them so they're not um unconditionally pro-social um and would that and be similar to humans are humans like unconditionally pro-social would you say in some sense yes i i think that 
we are in, in, in principle very uh, pro-social. Uh, there is a lot of examples, uh, especially in the news, that that would show the opposite. But uh, I think humans are, in principle, pretty pro-social, and not necessarily so conditionally. So uh, I th I think we we do a lot without us even being conscious about that we are doing that in a, in a pro-social sense. Um, and that's also. Um, one of my research interests um, uh, is, is, for example, in, well, it's not so much about pro-sociality, but it plays a major role in there in, in reciprocal altruism. So um, at a given point in time, I give something um, and um, then I get something in return for that. That's the idea of reciprocal altruism and that's, um, the, the, that hypothesized to be one of the main reasons why it uh, can maintain in the population because if you don't get anything for it in return, then yeah, obviously you're at a at a fitness um, disadvantage. Uh, and so individuals that would act like that, that would only give and never receive anything, or are worse off than individuals that are receiving but not giving. Um, and therefore, this behavior of giving, uh, yeah, would would finally disappear from the population because those individuals uh, either not reproduce or uh, don't live long enough to reproduce. But we know that humans are very pro-social and, and therefore um, the idea of reciprocal altruism has been put forward by Robert Trivers. Uh, but now the question is, so how does that work? Are we cognitively aware of what we've given and what we've received? or are we not? And if you consider human interactions, uh, so if you consider your own interactions on a daily basis, uh, okay, nowadays we, we don't get out so much, so we don't have that many interactions with that many people, but in a normal, in a normal situation, uh, you have a lot of interactions with a lot of people. And uh, if, you, if you look at Dumber's number, you, I think there's about 100 acquaintances you have or something like that. Um, and if we had to keep track of everything we've given and received of all those 100 individuals, uh, I think our heads would explode if we really had to cognitively and consciously keep track of all these things. Um, and therefore, uh, what I and others have proposed is that that is, is not necessarily a cognitive process, but rather an emotional one. So we, per individual with whom we interact, we have some sort of emotional um, appreciation of that individual. And that emotional uh, appreciation does uh, somehow reflect what we've given and received for, with and from that individual, uh, to and from that individual. Um, so it is updated with all recent interactions, but not in such a quantitative way that we really um, keep up to the cent what that individual has given us and what we've received. Basically, if we receive something from such an individual, 
It gives us a good feeling about that individual um, and that adds to the already good feeling we had about that individual or that reduces the bad feeling we had before about that individual, just to give an example. Um, so it's not, it, it's more of a qualitative way of assessing what kind of relationship you have with all these individuals uh, rather than a, a, a quantitative way. Yes, and this would also then, this is also true for other species who well, yeah, are that's showing not, this pro-social behavior. That's something that you're trying to find out now. Yeah, that's, that's the whole idea. The, the, the whole idea that this is a, a rather emotional um, mechanism actually stems from animal research uh, because um, compared to psychologists, um, notice that we see reciprocal altruism among animals too. I mean, we see the patterns. Uh, so we, we, we can basically correlate what has been given and what has been received uh, within a troop of monkeys, so to say. And in general, that actually correlates pretty nicely. So there is, there is clear correlation between what I've given and what I've received from all individuals with whom I'm interacting. And then researchers have started wondering how these animals would do that because, and especially the comparative psychologist, uh, they considered animals not smart enough to actually keep track of this in a, in a, in a cognitive and conscious way. Um, and I'm not saying that animals are smart enough, I'm actually saying humans are not smart enough to do that either, because as I explained before, if you're interacting with 100 plus individuals and you have to keep track of everything, well, very few people are able to do that, I would say. So, um, so yes, that would give an, 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 an explanation of reciprocal altruism among animals, but also among humans. Um, well, with regard to the prosociality, um, that is interesting. Uh, so there, it's interesting to see indeed the, how dependent it is. So uh, indeed, how contingent these, these behaviors are. Um, and yeah, whether that is conditional. And, and there we do see differences between species. So, uh, and what we found with the corvids, we've eventually actually compared um, eight different corvid species in their pro-social tendencies. And um, what we found actually uh, corroborated the hypothesis that had been put forward by uh, Judith Burkhardt and colleagues in, in, in in Zurich, that is that the cooperative breeding species are in fact more pro-social than the non-cooperative breeding species. Um, and something we want, I at least want to look into further now is the how unconditional that is. So the experiments we ran there were not really able to pinpoint that really nicely. Um, because they were open experiments, so these were group experiments. Um, so we could basically see what happened at the apparatus, uh, but then the birds could fly off into their aviaries. Um, and we actually also studied one wild population, so they could just fly off. Um, and we, it was impossible for us to really investigate what happened after the experiment. So if individual A um, in, in that experiment gave something to individual B, 
or provided access to food. Um, and then both individuals would fly off. Uh, obviously, it's interesting to see then whether individual B afterwards does something for individual A. Uh, but that's something that the experiment did, did not allow us to, uh, to investigate properly. Uh, so we had to work with what, what measures we could see. Um, and one of the interesting things, for example, is that the Azure Wing magpies, um, so yeah, I, I might need to explain the experiment a little. Yes, maybe you can say a little bit about, because um, you have really studied so many different topics and so many different species. And maybe this particular, if you could maybe explain this particular experiment, what you set out to do with which species. And you already mentioned you did work with animals in human care and then some wild. Um, so if you, yeah, if you can um, give more information on that, that would be great. So we can kind of picture it and maybe we can also put some pictures or a short video if you have uh, with the podcast so people can actually see it in action as well. Yeah, I have some, I have some nice videos of that. Um, yeah, so this experiment is a, a, a so is a comparative study which we did with um, eight different corvid species, so crow-like uh, species, uh, which were the common raven, the um, carrion crow, the jackdaw, the uh, rooks, uh, azuring magpies, Iberian, um, no, the uh, I'm sorry, the um, Siberian jays, large-billed crows, and the, oh, now I'm lost. I, I lost count. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, no, don't worry about it. That's that's yeah, no problem. We can always add them later. Yeah. yeah. So with a lot of different corvid species at different labs. So this is not just work by myself. It's actually a collaborative work of uh, different uh, labs all around the world. Uh, that work with these different uh, corvid species. And uh, the experiment is a what is called a group surface paradigm. And it's originally designed for, for monkeys or primates, because the, the apes were also included. Um, but we translated it into a bird-friendly um, paradigm, basically. And the the... The apparatus is a seesaw mechanism, which is attached to the uh, wire mesh of the uh, of the of the the, uh, the um, aviaries the birds live in. And in case of the wild birds, we actually basically uh, encaged the apparatus, and the birds were free. So the apparatus was in a cage um, rather than the birds. Um, yeah, so basically the other way around. And the idea is that. Uh, the, the, the seesaw mechanism is such that the outside, which is on the outside of the aviary, is heavier than the inside. So it's always tilted down on the outside. Um, but it's only so much heavier that whenever a bird lands on the inside and there's a perch which we made there, um, the seesaw actually tilts. Uh, so yeah, basically this children seesaw, which you see in any in every play garden. So what we now do is that on the outside, we put food, um, but at the end of the seesaw, which is out of reach for the animals. So they cannot reach the food. 
However, when they land on the seesaw, the seesaw tilts, the food rolls down and comes to the, um, the wire mesh and then they can actually reach it. However, in the test situation, um, we put the food on the other end of this, so not opposite to the perch where the birds can land, but completely on the other end of the um, seesaw. Um, so when they land on the perch, the food rolls into reach in that sense that a bird can reach it, but the bird on the perch itself cannot reach it. It's too far away for the bird to reach it. Of course, it can try to go there and grab the food, but to do so, it has to leave the perch and the seesaw tilts back to its original position and the food rolls out of reach again. So the only thing the bird can do is to land and wait for another bird to collect the reward. And therefore it's a group service because you provide to the rest of the group um, and you cannot access it yourself. And as I already mentioned, so, so you do this over multiple trials, uh, multiple sessions even, and um, you compare this also to control situations in which there's either no food or, there is, uh, or the food is not accessible for, uh, for anyone. So then there's actually a, a plexiglass plate uh, obstructing the access to any food. And if they keep on doing it in the test situation in which the food becomes accessible to the groommates, you, 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 you can basically say these are uh, pro-social individuals, especially when they not do the same in the control situation. So when they figure out in the control situations, okay, this is this, this doesn't bring anything to anyone. So not even not just not to me, but not to anyone. As I already mentioned, so the um, the um, cooperative breeding species, which in this case were the um, carrion crows and the azure ring magpies, uh, they in fact did this very often. Um, and, and just to give you an example, the Azure Ring magpies, um, they got 25 trials per session. And basically in any of those 25 trials, uh, a bird landed on the perch, waited until another bird grabbed the reward, and then they both flew off. So they basically took any opportunity they could get to provide food to a conspecific. Yeah, that's so interesting. It also reminds me of one of these photos I saw uh, on the, um, which maybe, you know, um, um, you've seen as well is, I think it's uh, crows or magpies, I can't remember, but they are along a highway and they have found out how to access the garbage bags. And there is like one always pulling the bag while another one is like taking the stuff out of the bag. And um, but they, they have to keep the bag up lifted, and okay. so the other one can get the stuff out, and then both of them, you know, enjoy the goodies that they got out of the garbage. I've but, never uh, seen that, I, that's, that's interesting. I would like to see okay, that. I'll, I'll try and find it. But I, as you were telling about this, I'm like, oh, that that picture came into my mind where one is doing this job and the other is doing another job, and then together, you know, they're enjoying the benefits. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's really cool. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so that that's basically the idea. So you need to, yeah, you need to perform something, and and you and, and in this case, you actually don't get a reward. And in in our experiment, the the bird that acts doesn't get the reward. 
Right. Uh, and still, uh, I mean, we, we did this over five sessions, so you expect them to have learned the fact that they don't get a reward in this situation themselves. Uh, but they kept on going, so they kept on providing. Whereas in the control situations, we actually, over the five sessions, saw that they stopped doing it. So they learned the contingencies of the experiment and they learned, okay, this doesn't make any sense, so I'm, I'm not gonna do this. However, when they could provide to someone else, and again, I mentioned, they don't get anything themselves in this situation. Nevertheless, over five sessions, they kept on going. And even half a year later, when we tested them again, they still would provide almost at 100%. So every chance they got, they would, um, would try to give something to someone else. Wonderful. Really interesting to see with the Azure Ink Magpies is that um, what we saw is we see a bird coming, flying in, landing on the perch, and then waiting until another individual comes and actually collects the reward, and then both fly off. If you compare that to, for example, the ravens, so the ravens were First of all, they were not as pro-social, so they didn't, um, they didn't do it as, as much. Uh, but if they were, if they actually uh, did give something to someone else, it was a completely different situation. So what you saw with the Ravis was one individual is sitting and waiting at the receiving end. So it sits there and waits. And it just waits long enough until somebody else comes and actually lands on the perch and provides food to that individual. And not surprisingly, the individual that is sitting on the receiving end is the alpha male of that group. Uh, so we see a completely different situation there in, in the sense that here it is conditional. So the one that is, um, is providing is probably expe expecting tolerance or whatever from this um, dominant individual. So you, you, you see these nice patterns with regard to uh, dominance. And we saw this in other species also that it, where it happened, it were often bonded individuals. So uh, when, when there is already a, a social bond between two individuals and would coordinate their behavior then. Um, but yeah, for the Azure Ring magpies, it's really unconditional in that sense, because if you land, you never know who's going to uh, grab the re uh, reward from your group. It might be actually the one you don't like at all. Uh, but yeah, that's not something you cannot change. So they seem to have this predisposition, so this, this psychological adaptation, like, I need to give, I need to give. And that makes them, uh, yeah, really interesting study subjects. Yes, and you have studied, uh, of course, a lot of the social and pro-social behaviors, and some of your paper titles include words like kindness. And um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and what you have seen in other animals, apart from obviously, I need to give, I need to give. Have you seen other types of kindness? Well, I'm a bit surprised by the kindness, to be honest. We, we have, a, a, I, I published an article together with uh, Megan Lambert on, um, which is called an unkindness of ravens. Um, and okay, so let's let's cut that question out. Um, let's let's do something else. Don't worry about it. Um, what we could do? Well, how about the mirror test and inequity? Shall we do that? Sure, sure. Okay, so you have also uh, wait. Let me give a little bit more space. 
So among the many topics that you have studied, apart from social and pro-social behavior, you also uh, you know, have an interest in the mirror test and in equity and, but also, you know, what does it then, maybe you can talk a little bit about what these tests are about and, and inequity in animals and also when animals are not passing, you know, these tests that we devise, what could that mean or why is this important or maybe not important? All right. Well, I'll start with an equity aversion. Um, because inequity aversion is basically um, one of those proximate mechanisms that might, in fact, uh, facilitate cooperation or um, uh, reciprocal altruism in that sense. Um, and as you, you basically keep track of what, it's actually keeping track of cheaters. So as soon as somebody's cheating you, that you'll notice this. Um, and this is an important thing to have if you live in a society in which cooperation is necessary. Um, so if, you're, if you don't have this ability, then you can be cheated upon over and over again. And obviously that's not in your uh, best interest um, and also not in your uh, fitness interest. Um, so inequity version is really one of those proximate magnums that, that, that might facilitate cooperation. And what we know of the studies on inequity aversion uh, is also that we find it mostly in species of which we know that they cooperate a lot in, in their natural lives. Uh, so that makes perfect sense. Um, how it precisely works is still unclear. Uh, so, so there's a lot of questions open on how do how these animals actually uh, process these, these stimuli. If we then look at the mirror test, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm interested in animal behavior. I'm interested in animals and interested in how animals see the world. And I've taken a specific interest in animal uh, social cognition. Um, but everything comes from just curiosity about animal, animals. And uh, such a academic direction is also something that happens throughout your career, uh, not necessarily because you wanted it to happen like that, um, but yeah, it happens. Um, but yeah, I've always been interested in yeah how animals see the world. So then sometimes these I call them pet projects uh, pop up, um, and one of them is indeed uh, these these mirror studies. Um, so when, when working with the ravens, uh, I became more and more interested in them, in, in, in the ravens. And uh, at that point in time, uh, some studies on mirror self-recognition came out uh, in, in, for example, elephants. Um, and I was wondering, so what happens if you put a raven in front of a mirror? Would it recognize itself? Um, and um, it started as a little pilot project, and then I had a very motivated student, Lisa Claire von Holland, uh, that went on to uh, to do a master thesis on this, and eventually is now working on her PhD um, on on this general topic about um, self awareness um, in 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 corvids. Um, and. So we've been doing the uh, mirror mark test with, uh, by now we've done it with 
crows, ravens, and azure-winged magpies. And in fact, none of them has passed the test. And this is interesting because there has been a study on um, magpies, so the Eurasian magpie, the, the common magpie you see here in the Netherlands, so to say, um, that has shown mirror self-recognition. But since then, uh, a lot of different labs have tried this with different corvid species, and uh, basically none of them uh, could replicate this finding. And it's not that I want to dismiss the finding on the magpies, but it is curious that, that they are the only ones that, uh, that found it in, in, in that species, and that other species within the same family don't show this behavior, and there's no no good reason to think of why magpies do have it and for example ravens don't have it at least i i cannot think of a good reason um so it's interesting to look at in general so why is it that the magpies did this uh, and the, the the ravens don't uh, but it's also interesting to consider what does it mean that a species does not pass the mark test does that mean that this species doesn't have self-awareness or is that an equation we, we, we might not be able to make? And if you then look at what the psychologists say about um, the mark test, then it becomes really interesting because the psychologists actually don't really believe in the mark test at all, or at least not in it as a proxy for self-awareness. So the only thing you can show with it is some sort of mirror self-recognition. But the question is whether mirror self-recognition equates to self-awareness. <clears throat> and that's still an open question and it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, that is not to say that this test is useless. I think it's an, a really interesting test. Um, but the problem is it's also the only test to assess something like self-awareness. Uh, if we, if you want to make that translation. Um, and so far there's actually not much of other tests around. Um, and that's actually quite difficult because it, it, it heavily de um, depends on only one uh, of the senses. So it's, it's, it's all visual. And that also means that, for example, that animals that are not so a good in their vision cannot be really tested in this, uh, in, in this paradigm. So we're desperately in need of new tests that allow us to somehow assess something like self-awareness uh, or self-recognition. Let, let's, let's, uh, let's keep it clean. Uh, so that's uh, something we've been working on with this, uh, with this PhD student. Um, and it's still work in progress. Um, um, but yeah, so far we, uh, we, we don't know yet, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's something we're working on at the moment. Um, yeah, and I think it's very, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, so, so the test we did with the crows and the ravens and the magpies, so there, with regard to the mirror self-recognition in, in, in the mirror test, uh, there has been a, a, a kind of a new school that basically says, well, it's not black or white. There are actually some grayscales in between. So it's, it's more of a, um, 
continuous variable than a yes or no. Um, and interestingly, so many of many species, if you show them a mirror, they will start showing social behavior to the mirror image. Um, so they basically consider it a conspecific. So they don't consider it as, as themselves. Uh, they consider it as a conspecific. And they might either show affiliative, uh, but most generally they, they show aggressive behavior towards their own mirror image. Uh, so it's, it's an unknown individual. They've never seen it before. And um, generally animals tend to react aggressively to an outgroup individual. So that's what they're doing. Um, and some species can then overcome this behavior and start learning the contingencies of the mirror image um, and then might actually go on to inspect the mirror. Uh, so to look behind the mirror. Uh, so what is this thing? So this is of course anthropomorphized, uh, but you get the feeling that they are starting to wonder what is this thing? Uh, how does it work? Et cetera, et cetera. And then even fewer species then move on to show contingent behaviors. So they basically start rocking in front of the mirror or start waving uh, their head uh, and check then, of course, whether the mirror image is doing the same, which the mirror image obviously does. Uh, so you see them checking out these contingencies in the mirror. Um, and then only very, very few species start actually inspecting themselves in front of the mirror. And the classic example is the chimpanzee. Uh, so what chimpanzees are most interested in other chimpanzees is the butts of other chimpanzees. Uh, so the first thing they, as soon as they really learn the contingencies of the mirror, the first thing they will do is actually uh, start investigating their own butt. So how does my butt look? Um, which is of course a very, fair question to ask. Um, but as, as I already mentioned, so you have these different stages uh, of uh, mirror exploration. And what was interesting with ravens, for example, is they, they completely skip this, um, this social stage. So they, they never showed any social behavior towards their mirror image, which might suggest that they do have already quite fast some idea of what a mirror is and how it works but then in the end they don't show the um the mirror uh, they don't really pass the mirror mark test so yeah it remains a really difficult concept um and uh yeah as i mentioned before we're in desperate need of more tests uh rather than just the mirror mark test Yes, and I think, like you say, you know, you want to keep it clean. So you talk about self-recognition, but you also, you know, talked about the broader aspect of self-awareness. Of and and that immediately made me think of the time that I was working with dolphins and killer whales, and when I would be in the water with them, specifically also with like dolphins, that they would be like right next to you, and they. Um, would, you know, dive very carefully and they would never, like, touch you, even though, you know, if they want to touch you, they'll definitely do that. Yeah. And and I always, you know, thought that was remarkable because, you know, <laughs> we, we are obviously not so gracious in water at all, you know, where we are in this medium in, in, in space. And they, um, and when you see them move through water and around each other, 
they seem to have such a good feeling of where they are, you know, to this, and, and I, I use there the words to me, I don't know, maybe that's incorrect, but such self-awareness of where they are in this space uh, as they were moving relative to somebody else who was, you know, me or somebody else that was near them. And so yeah, I don't know if you can, if you can talk, uh, if that makes sense, but that's how uh, I had to think sense. of it. It's, it's really great yeah. that you actually touch upon this because that is one of the avenues we're, uh, we're heading in now is to look at what we call body self-awareness. So um, are they aware of their own body? And what we are interested in is whether they can be aware of their own body as an obstacle. Um, and unfortunately, another group was um, ahead of us on, on this uh, idea. <laughs> and they actually did this with, um, with, uh, with elephants. Um, and the idea stems again from um, developmental psychology. And that's uh, in, in that sense, what they do then is they give children a trolley that they can walk behind um, and push forward. However, they attach a piece of cloth to this trolley and lay this piece of cloth down um, up, in, up, up in front of that trolley. So as soon as they want to grab the handle to push the trolley forward, they will step on the cloth. And then if they start pushing, they, they basically their own weight keeps them from pushing the trolley forward. And the child has then to, to, to acknowledge its own body as an obstacle and has to step aside away from the cloth to move the trolley forward. But then, of course, you need to recognize that your own body is now the obstacle. And interestingly, this, is, uh, this develops in children at about the same time that uh, mirror self-recognition uh, develops. Uh, so it seems uh, highly related to each other, so to self-recognition, uh, maybe even self-awareness. Um, and so that's an avenue we're now uh, heading into, and um, we, we hope to, to uh, do something similar uh, with chimpanzees, uh, because with chimpanzees we know, of course, that they can pass the mirror mark test. Uh, so then we can actually validate this this setup in 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 animals, and then obviously as soon as we have validated that, then we can go on to test species um, that might not have passed the um, mirror mark test, uh, but to see whether they at least have something like body self awareness or body self recognition. It's really fascinating all these different. Uh, topics and you're studying so many different ones and in, in so many different species and obviously you do this together with a lot of different people in a lot of different places and most of the people listening to the podcasts are people who are working with animals caring for animals in a wide variety of environments from research facilities to farms and zoos and aquariums and sanctuaries so we're always looking at, you know, we have a series called Science into Practice, which is the translation from a scientific article into why is this relevant to animal welfare? And also, you know, how can this be applied to animal care? So thinking of, you know, obviously today we're not going to do this all in this podcast, but hopefully we can continue to work on finding ways to do so. Um, do you have any any ideas or links, you know, as it 
you know, you already talked about animals who have friends, who have meaningful relationships, uh, live longer. Um, so that it has welfare implications that obviously animals are enjoying, you know, company. But do you have ideas or advice or maybe for care professionals, some of the tests that you might be doing could be enrichment activities or maybe it could apply to training. Um, do you have any ideas or, or advice of, for people who are caring for animals, what they could do with all this wonderful science? Yeah. Um, so, so first off, so I mean, I do a lot of experimental work uh, and that always sounds a bit scary, like doing animal experiments. Um, but let me, let me first um, underline that all the work I do, I do on a voluntary base, or basically uh, the animals do it on a voluntary uh, base. I, I also do it on a voluntary base because I love my, my job. Um, <laughs> but we create a situation in which the animals can partake, uh, but they, they don't have to. Uh, so we, we never force animals to, uh, to work in our experiments. Some of these experiments re require the animals to be socially isolated from the rest of the group. Um, but again, here they get the choice. We know that they don't ne necessarily like to be socially isolated. Some, some actually do. Um, those are <laughs> generally the ones lower at the, at the dominance hierarchy. Um, but some of them don't. Um, but they get the choice, uh, and obviously they get rewarded for uh, for parts in, in in our experiments. And if they don't want to, they don't have to. But second, also, what I want to underline is that I try to add some sort of e ecological validity to the um, experiments I do uh, by trying to do the experiments in the group rather than uh, in, on an isolated individual. Uh, because in natural life, they are also never isolated. So the behavior you, uh, you find when an individual is isolated might not actually tell you something about the general behavior of the species because they live, on them, at least most of the species I work with, they live in social groups. So we try to translate our experiments to group experiments in, in which they can actually um, participate as a group. Uh, so first that, and in such a sense, it's, it makes it also easier to implement because it requires less training uh, sometimes of the animals. Um, and yeah, so for example, with the seesaw experiment, it's basically hanging up a seesaw and then there's a whole uh, scientific protocol of actually performing the test. Um, but in principle, the seesaw itself is just enrichment. You can, you could, you could, you could describe it as enrichment and the animals love to, to work on it. Um, it's only then when you start manipulating the outcome of that enrichment device, basically is when you start actually testing uh, the individuals. But, um, it's an easy way of enriching, and I think you can, yeah, you can gain a lot of knowledge with simple enrichment measures about uh, the cognition of, of these animals. So, in, in for, but that, that's actually the wrong way around, <laughs> like you asked. So, so, your question would be, what, uh, what could that knowledge uh, bring to uh, welfare professionals? 
Um, well, obviously, um, if we see that these friendships are um, important to them um, and these differentiated relationships, uh, we need to make sure that they can create such differentiated in, in, uh, relationships. So a troop of macaques uh, only becomes a proper troop of macaques if it consists of at least three individuals, such that you can have a good relationship and a bad relationship. Um, and obviously a troop of macaques of only three individuals is a poor site in my opinion. Uh, so we really need to um, think about these things also from, from the perspective that these individuals need to have some sort of need for these relationships and, and therefore uh, should be allowed to have such relationships. Um, the, the mechanism to create those relationships is present in these individuals. And if they don't get the opportunity to actually work on that mechanism, they, it, then it might translate into, uh, into stress to those individuals or um, unwanted behavior, so to say. Alternatively, if, if it, so as I mentioned, so this, this mechanism is present and it's a very strong mechanism in social species to, uh, to, to form and maintain these relationships. Uh, and if they don't, are not allowed to form that when it comes specific, uh, what you then will see is that they will try it with anything else. Uh, so that might result in intraspecific uh, uh, social relationships. And uh, yeah, well, the best example is humans with their pets and, uh, and vice versa. Uh, this drive to bond is so strong that we have really strong bonds with our, with our dogs or with our cats. And vice versa, those, that, that, that bond is as strong for the dog as it is for us, uh, at least let's hope so. Um, so they have this mechanism present as well, and, and, and that's why they, they will uh, create these bonds. Does that help? And would you, uh, yes, absolutely. Would you also say, um, because you, you, know, you talked about participation and choice, giving animals opportunities uh, to participate, and this is something that we see in many facilities today, that they, Animals get a choice whether they want to participate in an ambassador program or, you know, in some other activity, obviously participating voluntarily in their care, uh, health care and so on. But also you mentioned, you know, tasks as enrichment. So the importance of cognitive challenges. And this is clear, of course, not just for primates, but also for birds and likely others. And the important part also that I think that you stress very nicely is the uh, about numbers of animals and you know the 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 friendships that they can form and the quality of the relationships that they can then also form depending on i remember um once a comment from professor bernard Rowland asking you know how many how many sheep do you need for one happy sheep uh, and that has always stuck with me because i think it's such an important question with regards to you know, not only numbers, but also the quality of the relationship that animals can have there. Um, yeah. But but then also, I wonder, you know, you talked quite a bit about the, the primates. Can you say something about these the social needs for birds? Because we have lots of different 
you know, group sizes, and sometimes it's only one or two animals together. Can you say something about the importance of this in, in different bird species that you've studied? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing with birds. Um, it depends also a bit on, on the species, of course. Um, but for example, uh, life history of a, of a raven um, with regard to social relationships is quite complex. In that sense, so they uh, first year, the first half year, they stay with their parents. And then they move on to live in uh, large flocks. Um, and that's uh, that's the the stage in which we did most of our tests. So, and that's a juvenile uh, stage, I would say, because that's when you can keep them in these large flocks. But from a given age onwards, they might actually start creating pair bonds. And um, the problem with the pair bond is that two individuals in a pair bond become dominant over all non-pair bonded individuals. And if you have a, so what did we have? I mean, more than a 100 square meter aviary for 10 ravens, uh, five meters high. And then as soon as two of those 10 pair up, then you see those two occupying 99 square meters of the aviary and the other eight sitting at this one square meter uh, because they're completely dominated by those other two. Mm -hmm. So that's also not a, um, not a situation which you want because obviously this is very stressful for those eight individuals. Um, so then you need to separate those two. Uh, so you need to separate that pair from the group, um, and, and which is basically also what happens in the wild. So they become pair bond, they become territorial. So they have their own territory. But if you then look a little bit deeper, that's not the whole life, the, the whole social life they have throughout the year. They actually do interact with other birds at different locations. Um, not in their territory, whomever comes in their territory is being shooed away, uh, but they move outside their territory too and then interact and meet up with other individuals, sometimes in an aggressive, but also sometimes in an affiliative uh, way. So you have this, this kind of a fission fusion society uh, in which there are these still non-bonded individuals that flock in large groups, and you have several of these territorial birds that fly into these flocks once in a while. Um, and this is obviously very difficult to translate into um, a zoo environment. Um, and I mean, there have been quite nice attempts with fission fusion species that allow uh, groups to split up. Uh, I, at the top of my mind, I know St. Andrews has a very nice chimpanzee enclosure in which there is different enclosures that are all connected to each other. And yes, I, at the Edinburgh Zoo, they have at that. Edinburgh Zoo, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's, that and, is and, absolutely. And I think, uh, I, I think it's really important that we start to learn to look at these species in, in such a way and then uh, think about the, 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 
the enclosures and how do we keep them that we allow uh, such behavior to uh, to happen. Uh, yes. But yeah, it, it's it's a difficult uh, difficult question. Um, no, yeah, but I think what you just gave as an answer, I think, is such a great way of thinking about, you know, how are we going to evolve housing for different species of birds that have different, you know, um, life histories, but also how they have different needs depending on different periods of the year. So, and so that's wonderful. And you have shared already so many different, you know, research findings and, and animal stories. And you did talk about your work, which is close to your heart and that you did your PhD on as well on animal friendships. So perhaps we could um, conclude the podcast with a few friendship stories, if you have them, because we all are always looking you know, forward to some good animal, animal stories. Um. Yeah, friendship stories. Well, I'm always intrigued by the, the, the memory these animals have of you. Um, so, for example, with the ravens, I, it's been a while since I was there. Um, and uh, yeah, at a given point also, you, you uh, unfortunately, you do less and less actual animal work and you sit more behind your computer. And that it also means that you don't see the animals that often. And, uh, but yeah, as I mentioned, this bonding mechanism is, is really strong. So it also facilitates um, interspecies bonding in, in, and, and animals bond to their caretakers, the researchers, uh, just as much as we bond to them. Of course, good scientific practice um, dictates that we should not bond with our uh, test subjects and that we should... Uh, stay objective and um, keep it clean. Um, but yeah, it, it just doesn't always work that way. Uh, so there's always favorite animals. Um, and um, yeah, with the, with the ravens, there's a specific ravens called Astrid. Uh, and um, she and I bonded really nicely. And it's, um, Whenever I come there and I call her name, then she she comes to the um, the fence, sticks out her uh, beak, and then let lets me pet her beak, which is uh, well at least a sign of trust. Uh, it also requires some trust from me because uh, putting your fingers close to a beak is always a bit uh, a bit scary because they actually might bite, uh, but she she doesn't. And um, yeah, so I, I always love it when when I. I Go back there, and I and I see uh, see Astrid um, immediately flying towards me, even after uh, more than a year or so that I didn't see her. So so I I truly enjoy that. Um, yeah, and I, Wonderful. I, I with with all the animals I've worked with with the with the macaques with the chimps, uh, same story. If the chimps see me, they they still react to me. Uh, so yeah. That, that's something I, I really uh, appreciate very, very much. Yes, and it must be also, you know, so many of these interactions that you have, even though you're a very, you know, accomplished scientist, you, um, it also, I'm sure, it makes um, you think about lots of things that you want to investigate, but also this flow of what it is to be with another being that, you know, we don't necessarily all understand about but this 
like this humanity and the other all the other animals right so it's this i'm sure you you're bouncing back and forth between all the things that you're probably thinking and feeling and at the same time how could i investigate that or is that is that not how well, it no, goes? exactly and it's um yeah. it's it's always um so i used to do this more often unfortunately lately i haven't done it so uh, so often but um what i think is always good practice is once in a while leave your camera behind leave your notebook behind just go into the enclosure uh, if you're allowed or sit next to the enclosure and just watch and see what happens um see them interact with each other see them interact with you and interact with them as well because that 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 starts the wonder about uh who they are how they think about the world um and then you come up with really you might come up with really interesting ideas and then the next step is to go back to the office think about these ideas look at the literature and think about clever ways of actually asking those questions uh, but it all always starts with wonder and you you don't get wonder from behind from sitting behind your computer and reading papers beautiful i love that <laughs> i i completely i concur um i really like that practice and wonder and musing about you know what is their world like and then trying to make sense of that through our you know science and our humanity so yeah wonderful thank you so much Jörg, for sharing all your research topics and you know species and and also some of the really nice um you know ideas for care staff and what we'll probably do is uh, link obviously to your website and to all the work that people can can look at but and maybe work together at some of the science into practice of some of the findings that you have and how they can apply to you know improve and expand all the animal care and welfare programs that we already have in various facilities so thank you so much for being on the podcast today and You're welcome uh, and I, yeah, I look forward to hearing more and uh, to connect with you again. Thanks so much. All right. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing. <laughs>